Welcome to the Eater Upsell, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. As always, I, Helen Rosner, and my co-host, Greg Morabito, are here talking with some of the coolest, most interesting people in the entire world about food and stuff related to food. This week, Greg and I are talking with Jay McInerney, who you may know as the ultra-famous, successful novelist behind the iconic 80s New York novel, Bright Lights, Big City. He's also a pretty big wine buff and for the last 20 years has been writing about wine for publications like the Wall Street Journal and Town and Country. Greg and I talk with Jay about pretty much what you'd expect, doing coke in the 80s, where to get a great Bordeaux, what it's like being a person who both is part of and a chronicler of the world of the ultra wealthy. It's a rad conversation. We're going to get to it in just a second. Greg, what's on your mind? I don't know if we've ever actually had a a formal conversation about the subject of avocados and avocado toast. And I actually don't know, Helen, what is your, do you have an opinion about avocados and avocado toast just off the bat? My gut feeling is avocados are fantastic and avocado toast is delicious. I I agree, but more I agree to the second part of it. I, I guess I was, th- I love avocado toast. I mean, I'm a, you know. You live in California. Um, You're yeah, legally required to. Yeah, and I'm, you know, in that age of people, I suppose, that really loves avocado toast. But I was thinking, like, you know, uh, over the last few years, it seems like people have really embraced avocados and the toast made from them. But, you know, it becomes this thing that, like, millennials want avocados and Subway is going to start offering avocados on its sandwiches. And it's a punchline. It's like a punchline. Hold my avocado. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I I sometimes buy avocados, but I've come to a very specific conclusion, which is that, now just hear me out here. I think what people really love is guacamole and not specifically just avocados. Whoa. 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 I mean, we talked about this a little bit in our, when we had Melissa Clark on the show. Remember, we we had this like fascinating taxonomic digression about like when is something a hummus and when is something an avocado and when is something like a bean spread right and, right and and i think that that crystallizes down to like a really key thing happening in in this point that you're making here which is like is it the vehicle that matters or is it the spices and the flavorings i should pull back and say i wildly disagree with you but i'm trying to like Approach your position with generosity. Yeah. I mean, here's just my thought. Like, you know, like any, you know, person who lives in California and tries to care about produce and stuff, I bought avocados and tried to make my own toast. And this is what I've decided is that if you don't put all the things on the avocado toast to make it like the same flavor profile as guacamole, it's kind of gross. Like if you don't add the lemon, the extra bit of fat from like olive oil, if you don't add salt, you know, for like... The, the saline quality, um, if you don't add a little heat to it, you know, it's just kind of this umami fat thing that is on a piece of toast. And I'm sure, I'm cer- certain that people really like that. But, uh, you know, I think that, like, as it's being, it's been sort of standardized that an avocado toast at most restaurants that you might pay anywhere from 8 to $17 for has always got to have, like, lemon, usually red pepper of stuff. some sort. It's got stuff. Yeah, stuff. Salt. And that those things are what make it just kind of like a deconstructed guacamole. So I think those are the things that make it like psychologically reasonable for us to pay $14 for it. That's a very good point. But like I not as a resident of California. So I I am, you know, in an acknowledged way, a total avocado wannabe. Like I I eat an avocado every day. Right. Like every morning. Oh, really? Every morning. My my husband and I cut an avocado in half and we each eat a half of an avocado with a little bit of salt on it for breakfast. And so just some salt. Just some and... salt. Well, but this has been like an evolution because like originally we would have the avocado mashed on some toast and like we'd put like you were saying like some lemon juice and some olive oil and some pepper, some spices or like some leftover whatever from the night before or radishes or like I'd chop up some smoked salmon and we'd go like fucking crazy. And then laziness overtakes one's life as it always does and like we ran out of bread and I started using tortillas and then we were having avocado on tortilla every day and like putting all the crap on it is just so much more energy than I'm capable of exerting in the morning and so it just sort of became mashed avocado on tortilla and I feel like I've reached this point where like you know in in um 
tech and, and coding and, and like programming, they talk about the minimum viable product for something. Okay. Like uh-huh. what's the what's the least you can do to make the thing work? I feel like I've arrived at the minimum viable product for eating an avocado, which is you just need to put salt on it. Just uh, like sea salt or is that like crunchy flaky salt? I mean, or if just I'm, any salt? It, I, I personally am a big fan of crunchy flaky salt, but like it's, mm-hmm, really it's anything. Like, I mean, if if it's just like, you know, diamond kosher salt or like Morton with the girl in the umbrella, like just a, a little bit of salt to deepen the flavor. And then I eat it out of like its own little half with a spoon and it's cute and throw it away and, and compost it or whatever I do in my weird hippie life. But like, but I, I hear your point. I think you're you're right that there is definitely a spectrum of avocado quality. Like there are crappy, crappy avocados. And as avocados have become so ascendant as like everybody wants avocado on everything and in everything and it's on every menu and in every dish and like it's in your fucking smoothie and you can make chocolate mousse out of it now and like all this crazy stuff. Like the demand for avocados is so high that inevitably the quality is going to start going down. And sometimes you have that perfect, gorgeous avocado that tastes like rich, grassy sunshine and it has this amazing flavor but more often than not you just sort of have like green margarine just thinking about this i just don't know if i've ever had the perfect like bare naked avocado and maybe that is maybe that's the problem maybe if i could just have that experience everything might make a little more sense so I'm going to be searching for that perfect, pure avocado. Hashtag every, goals. Is that, is hashtag that? goals. I'm going to be searching in every grocery store, farmer's market, every avocado orchard, every nook and cranny, you and every refrigerator. musician Jason Mraz's avocado farm. I did not know he had an avocado farm. That's the only fact I know oh. about this man. It's my favorite fact. I will visit so long as he doesn't play his music. All right. Seems like a fair equation. Well, Craig, I I wish you well on your avocado journey. I'm going to be on that avocado journey. And uh, in the meantime, actually, I think we're going to be taking a little break from this podcast while I go hunt for avocados. Yeah. And we'll be back. We're going to take a couple of weeks off of new episodes of The Upsell, but you can still check in every Monday morning for reruns and remixes and super cool stuff that AP Dan is creating for you literally as we speak. And we will be back in the future with some awesome new stuff. So stick around, and uh, right after the music is our chat with a very interesting gentleman, a real figure in the worlds of literature and wine and just being a sort of New York man about town. Um, And we ask him at the very end of of the episode, so you're going to want to stick around for this or else just aggressively fast forward, which of the current crop of New York restaurants should a young person be doing coke in? Which I think is the most important question anyone can ask Jay McInerney, the author of Bright Lights, Big City. And he had a really good answer. So, so you're going to love it. Let us yeah. know if you do coke in any of the restaurants that Jay McInerney mentions. Um, and as always, please drop us a line at upsell at eater.com. Make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you give us a five-star rating. And I don't know, do all the other usual cool stuff. We love you. Let's have this interview. We're in the studio today with, as you just described yourselves to us, novelist, expensive wino, <laughs> and I, I will editorialize to add the wine columnist for Town & Country magazine, Jay McInerney. Welcome to the Eater Upsell. Thank you. A lot of our listeners probably know your wine writing because you've been writing about wine for 20 plus years now. Yeah, 20. It's 21, I guess. I, it was just Your started. wine writing career is legally able to drink now. <laughs> just, yeah, it started as I was something I was going to do for six months, and uh, strangely enough, I'm still at it. On this show, several times in the past, we've actually badmouthed wine writing, but not not mm-hmm. not yours. I mean, yours one of my favorite wine writers because you always seem to fold in. And keep an eye on the essential part of the experience, I think, which is that you're drinking wine. You know, it's 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 fun. It's an experience. It's supposed you know? to be fun. Yeah. And well, one of the reasons I started was because really most wine writing was so bad. And I'm my um, editor, Dominique Browning, who who took over House and Garden magazine back in 95, 96, um, uh, was getting into wine and she couldn't believe how bad most wine writing was and she kind of challenged me and said come on you could you could probably do better and i said well 
you know, I don't know that much about wine. And she she felt they, that could be part of the experience. Is you know, I'm just a little little bit ahead of of most of the readers. And I, uh, and I, I admitted when I didn't know what malolactic fermentation was uh, in the first uh, in the first wine column, and uh, I kind of went from there. That's that's so relatable of you, <laughs> you know, to acknowledge your flaws. I, I think you know one of the best ways to. Describe the aesthetic experience of wine is, is is with you know metaphors and similes. And as a novelist, I have presumably some facility in those in that area. Um, I don't know. It's been I I, did, I vowed to quit as soon as it wasn't fun anymore. But I guess it's I guess it's still fun. <laughs> That's wine writing, not wine drinking, right? Mm. Wine drinking is even more fun. Yeah, I guess that one never really stops but, you being know, fun. Until yeah, yeah. It... yeah, but the great thing about the wine writing is it, it, it's the only kind of writing that I seem to be able to do with a hangover. So, um, so, is it so it, for actually, real? it actually comes in really handy <laughs> for those days when I don't feel that I should be working on my novel. So, wait, what is it about wine writing? And I should back up just a little bit in case any of our listeners know you only from your wine writing. You're very famously the author of Bright Lights, Big City, as well as many other novels, one of which I have been instructed to say has recently come out in paperback. <laughs> and yes, right? Bright, it's precious bright, Precious Days. Precious um, Days. I, I, I was a novelist for, I was a published novelist for I don't know, 12 years before I took up the wine writing thing. And, um, and you know, I think, you know, I, I still I like to approach it as a novelist in terms of. You know, I, I like to write about the people who make one, and uh, and as I said, the, the you know I try to capture the aesthetic experience with with metaphors rather than uh, flavor descriptors, which I think can be really kind of clunky. You know, the the whole English wine writing school, at least when I started, was was very horticultural. You know, it was like you know it was all about wine smelling like certain flowers, and of <laughs> course, and I knew nothing about horticulture. You know, I, I thought, you know. It was more instructive to compare, you know, a wine that smells like teen spirit or, or a Ferrari than you know to to a certain kind of rose or gardenia. I don't know. Do gardenias have smells? I, I, I think they do. Either gardenias but, um, or camellias. Yeah, and the other and the other school of wine writing, uh, especially back then, was the, was the really technical one, which talked a lot about you know, um, the. Toast level of the oak barrels and 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 whether or not malolactic fermentation had taken place. I finally figured out what that was. What is and, it? Uh, <laughs> it's a secondary fermentation that converts lactic acid into I don't know into something else. Malic? <laughs> it's right or malic acid? I don't, I don't know. know. You see how to still I, I, This is all <laughs> some kind of secondary fermentation. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, well, this is precisely what I don't talk about in in my wine writing, and uh, I don't know it. You know, drinking is fun. Wine, wine writing should reflect that. And um, you know, you try to be instructive along the way, but um, but I think most of all, you try to be entertaining. Who are you talking to when you do your wine writing? Um, I, I think people who are really interested in wine, without necessarily being extremely knowledgeable, I guess. Um, I, I mean. I, I, I hope a broad audience, um, but you know I'm not I'm 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 not particularly talking to the experts. Uh, they they don't need me. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> They're experts. Cool. I think that um you know as other people have written about and noted, like wine bars are having a big moment right now, or neo bistros, or specifically places serving natural wine. And it's kind of a young crowd. And I know you've written, I, I consider you actually to be one of the, the foremost scholars on evolving yuppiedom. <laughs> and I'm kind of just curious, like, what's, what's your take on, uh, on that kind of boom? Well, yeah, this is, this is part of yuppiedom, this <laughs> consumption of wine, I guess. Um, yeah, I've, I've never, never been particularly fond of that word. But unfortunately, it was coined about six months before my first novel came out. And... Uh, uh, I believe by a journalist named Bob Green uh, in Chicago, and uh, and somehow it somehow it got attached uh, to me at various points. But um, but I didn't you know I, I think it partly has to do with the idea of connoisseurship, and um, um, and certainly there has been um, I don't know this has just been. Such a an explosion of connoisseurship in our culture, and um, 
Um, you know, uh, you mentioned wine bars. There, um, um, you know, there, there are so many different kinds of wine bars around the city. I mean, there's a, you know, I was just reading yesterday about a South African wine bar, entirely devoted to South African wines. Another one to, devoted to Greek wines. Um, natural wines, I don't know. I like them as long as they don't, as long as they don't taste like compost or or, or <laughs> horse shit. You know, I mean, and some of them do. I, that should. Be a standard for all wine, right? I mean, like, sometimes now, sometimes I think like natural wine is a synonym for bad wine. I don't know, but <laughs> that's very politically incorrect. But uh, seriously, there's a lot of there's a lot of bad winemaking that 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 masquerades under the label of natural wine. So you're not the hugest natural wine fan is the thing that we're gathering from you. Literally just saying that. I, I like them if they're not no, spoiled, yeah. <laughs> as no, they as they fair. sometimes are. No, I mean some of my favorite winemakers are. Are natural winemakers, um, um, so it's it, and and, and it, it, it's a trend to be applauded. The the the, the you know the reducing uh, artificial ingredients of any kind. Um, you know, I really I really think I think wine bottles should be labeled with every single ingredient. Uh, unfortunately, so far um, that that really doesn't happen except voluntarily. So as a, as a writer of both fiction and wine content, wine writing. Um, as you mentioned, you think that your experience as a novelist has helped make you not a bad wine writer, because <laughs> there is such a an extraordinary surplus of bad wine writing out there in the world. Does it ever go the other way around? In in your most recent novel, for example, there's one of the characters yeah. is sort of a blustering yeah. winephile. In my, in my latest uh, novel, Bright Precious Days, did you like that? Yeah, look at that. Yeah, my publicist <laughs> yeah. is going to be really happy with that. Um, <laughs> um, in my latest, uh, one, of, one of the main characters, Russell Calloway, who is a, an editor and, and a kind of an esthete, um, um, I kind of poke fun at his slightly pretentious approach to wine. He's he he, he get, he's the kind of guy who gives dinner parties and, and gives a little speech about the wine before everybody's allowed to start eating. And uh, uh, and there's also um, there's a scene of uh, that I can only describe as a as a real satire of this sort of wealthy collector world. Um, <clears throat> uh, the, the novel is set in 2007 2008, and um, I was specifically thinking of um, two uh, restaurants that really were such a big part of that pre-crash New York wine scene, uh, Crew and Veritas, um, both downtown. And both they now were, closed, right? Both yeah. now closed, both now shuttered. And, and really, you know, I think partly as a result of the crash and the sort of, um, I don't know, maybe a curtailing of expense account culture, perhaps. Those were real, like, Bacchanal-style restaurants. Yeah, they were unbelievable. I mean, they, they were the kinds of places where people would open... Uh, you know, a table of four would go through twenty thousand dollars worth of, of wine. Um, I actually lived a block away from Crew, and so I would often stop by the bar there, sort of hoping that, as, as sometimes happens, some 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 guy some guy who was opening a nineteen sixty two Latash would say, "Hey, aren't you Jay McInerney? Have have a glass." <laughs> oh, that's amazing! Shamelessly <laughs> capitalizing on your position. That's great. Yeah. It's research, yeah. you know. <laughs> but 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 there's a scene in the book which 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 kind of lampoons this um, this kind of competitive enophilia. One of the one of, one of the main characters is sort of bantering across the table from a rival with rival investment bankers, and and he actually um, you know there's a sort of blind tasting ritual, and he, he uh, the. Um, uh, the, the 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 main character has 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 bribed the sommelier to tell him to tell him what the eighty two Petrus is. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, yeah, I know it's um you know it's hard not to uh, it's hard hard not to be a little irreverent and uh, suspicious of that particular um, branch of of wine culture. Well, it's a very fun sliver of the world. To lampoon, yeah. you know. I mean, it's it, it has everything. It has obscene wealth. It has obscene <laughs> consumption. It has people pretending to know things they clearly know nothing about. It has the the allure, like the the potentiality that it is all just complete bullshit. Like that, it's a total sham. Yeah, I actually, I wrote a I wrote a nonfiction piece for. Um, I was actually when there was briefly a Men's Vogue. You may recall. Oh God, the, there was. Wasn't yeah, there? I had a very 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 good editor <laughs> who's since moved on to Esquire, but um, but he. 
he commissioned me to do this piece on the auction scene. Um, uh, and, and it just so happened in in 08, right? And, you know, right before everything started to go south with the, the, with the economy and with investment this. banking <laughs> culture and so on. And, um, and it was really, you know, I, I covered this auction, which, which later became kind of famous because this guy named Rudy Kurniawan was selling a batch of fake wine there. And uh, this French winemaker, this Burgundian named Laurent Ponceau, came over to make sure that the lots were withdrawn. There was a whole bunch of his, supposedly his family wine that, that was completely fake, you know, from, from you know, <clears throat> made allegedly in years before they even owned certain vineyards. And so, so he didn't on. even like fully fact check the fraud. No, no. but this was a, this was a, an auction. It was um, a wine <sighs> retailer, uh, auctioneer, Acker Merrill Condit, and uh, they had the auction at Crewe, one of the temples of mm -hmm. wine culture. And it was, it was complete madness, bedlam. I mean, people were shit-faced. And they were holding their paddles up, you know, long long past the Just moment like when they had won the playing lot. Ping pong. And, <laughs> and some people were passing out. <laughs> and it was... And it was it was a grab. I mean, it was it was really fun to be there at that moment, you know. Um, it, 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 and and subsequently, um, this 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 auction led to the the downfall of Rudy Kurniawan, who's now serving a seven year term for for wine fraud. I find wine fraud endlessly fascinating. I think for similar reasons as to you know why I think that the world of high end wine is so ripe for satire, but the fact that. We, we published a piece recently about this on Eater, but like that wine fraud is so pervasive, has existed for so long, yeah. and seems to consistently at every turn be effective. Like that, that in in some respects, it seems like the easiest expensive thing to fabricate. Yeah, I mean, I I think you know anybody with a certain anybody with a certain level of knowledge could probably. Successfully fabricate uh, or create fakes that were were somewhat convincing. Um, uh, you know, of course, it, it's hard to believe this guy, this one sort of slacker with, um, um, you know, who who, who 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 regularly sort of fell asleep at the dinner table, that he could have produced all these fake ones. <laughs> but um, I, I, th I think there were, I think there's more to this story that we don't know. But they, 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 there was a there was quite a good movie that came out recently that. Called sour grapes about this whole thing. As a matter of fact, I'm in it. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, no, it, no, it's it, it, it's 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 fun though. It's a good it's a good story. And, it, and you know, again, you have you have the prospect of, of of rich people being ripped off and fooled, which which always seems to be a crowd crowd pleasing element of any story. Yeah, I mean, I think even rich people like watching that happen to other rich people. Like it's yeah. it's the universal entertainment. Yeah. So that's pretty fun. So earlier you were you mentioned um, Crew and Veritas, two restaurants, you know, old soldiers mm -hmm. that passed away, you know, after the the uh, the bus there. Do you think that uh, New York got its mojo back in the last few years? Do you like where dining is concerned? Do you think that like that energy came yeah, back? Yeah, I think. I think uh, the energy absolutely has come back. Um, it's taking you know slightly different forms, though. You know, I think that um, a restaurant like Brooklyn Fair really. Uh, Changed the map. Uh, um, you know, of course, you had before that. You had you know uh, Joel Robuchon's Atelier, which which maybe is the template for this. But you know, the restaurants with you know sort of tasting counters and tasting menus, and um, you know, um, you know, there's a new. Um, there's been a new energy um, in, in in recent years, but but also a new spirit of um, you know. Uh, experimentation and, uh, and 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 also a move away from really formal dining. You know, I mean, I don't think we're ever going to see. I don't think we're likely to see, you know, another Le Bernardin open. You know, this year or next year. Um, although, 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 I guess the grill comes close. But uh, but in general, um, you know, I think the the you know the tasting menu experience that the, the the you know the 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 restaurant the restaurant composed entirely of of a sushi counter is 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 um is increasingly uh the the model and um 
even though uh, Brooklyn Fair has, in fact, moved to Manhattan, which is <laughs> strange. But <laughs> well, there was a there was a piece actually it was in Town and Country, which you write for about hey. the opening of the Grill, um, in which I I feel like Jeff Zelaznik, one of the one of the major food group guys, was saying that. Um, it seems like such an obvious point, but I think it was incredibly insightful that part of what makes the grill and the pool, which used to be the Four Seasons right. restaurant, so extraordinary is the physical space itself. And you look at a place like Le Bernardin, yeah. and similarly, like the physical space yeah. is, is large and remarkable. And there just aren't spaces like that in the same way there used to be, and when they become available, landlords carve them up into yeah, smaller um, and smaller rooms. You know, I, I think one of the one of the sad facts of of New York, the New York restaurant scene, is that, is that real estate is becoming increasingly, you know, a, a factor, and and and, and a, the sort of expense and scarcity of real estate is is is, is uh, defining the restaurant scene, and sometimes in negative ways. I mean, it's 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 very fortunate, I think, that that space was preserved, that incredible Philip Johnson designed. Um, Space, which is now the grill in the pool room. I wonder if um, I wonder if New York is just losing um, the ability to to retain restaurants where like the food is not supposed to be good, and that doesn't. It's not the point, you know. <laughs> like that's like my favorite well, genre. You know? Elaine's closed a long time ago. <laughs> oh God, yeah. Um, is Michael's still open? No, Michael's, uh, Michael's is very much still open. And is it and still it's, not very good? It's my. It's a lunch scene. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. Schiller's was no, like the those party all, spot, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, if the thing that everyone talks about is the fries, that's a pretty good sign that the food is not the point. No, I think there will always. I think there will always be room in, in New York for restaurants that aren't very good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you know, okay. So I, I mean, I, I think back in the, <laughs> back in the days of you know, like <laughs> there were certain outposts of the the McNally Empire that were just C and B scene places. You know, we weren't we weren't really paying much attention to the food. You know? Right. <laughs> a lot of the times we were just too high. <laughs> so I, I have to ask um, you actually about one of those. It's not he doesn't own anymore, uh, but I you know so. Closely associate you with the Odeon because of uh, you know yeah, yeah. your your everything yeah everything but it's on the cover yeah. of you know your your great first novel there your book and um, and now like the o- yeah there's some disagreement about who owes whom money because I I, I sort of feel like like. You know, I I did them a favor. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> but it was fine. You know, I, I well, I went. And I remember when the um, but right before the book came out, the Random House lawyers told me I had to get Keith McNally's permission because there was a, there was a chapter in the book which takes place in the audio, and people were snorting cocaine in the bathroom, and the, and the lawyers felt that, you know, that that them, Keith might not, you know, take kindly to this, and I went down and had a talk with him, and he just. Um, he just kind of smiled. He just laughed, and I, I, I think he didn't imagine he would ever hear from me again. But he said, "Yeah, sure, go ahead." Wow. And uh, and I said, "Oh, by, and by the way, the, the restaurant's going to be on the cover too." And <laughs> um, you know, I, it became you know the cover became iconic, as I guess I could say the book did as well. And uh, I don't know. I sort of feel like I put somebody's kids through college, but <laughs> well, now you know the, the Odeon, like it kind of. I feel like it fell out of favor a little bit, and then all the Condé Nast offices moved down to the World Trade Center, and now it's like mm-hmm. super hot again. Yeah, yeah. The Odeon, it's it's gone through several of those cycles, but yeah, it's 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 back. Do you ever go back with there? Vengeance. I I don't think the uh, I don't think the menu has changed since 1982. <laughs> I mean, it's still the only thing to get is the burger. Well, I do go back from from time to time, but and sometimes people make me go back. You know, like they, <laughs> oh, want, like a, like, they, they want to interview me over lunch at the Odeon or whatever. Well, it makes yeah. a good opening paragraph. Yeah. You know, like you write their lead for them. It's like and bringing them back to the place where it all started. Yeah, I love that. I don't know. You know, I love the neon. I love the. You know, I love that sort of Edward Hopper look of the exterior. It's pretty cool. I gotta say, that's a restaurant that I feel like is like always. It's just attracts weird. It attracts notable, unusual things or something. That's always been my experience there. It has a certain energy about. Well, my first experience was, <clears throat> I used to, I used to go and sit at the bar uh, before I would go to say you know the Mud Club or area. Um, you know, I'd go, I'd go to Eleven to the Odeon. I'd sit there, and I, I couldn't possibly afford at that time to do both a nightclub and and a restaurant so I would inevitably choose just to drink and 
you know, but there would be John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd and Andy Warhol and Julian Schnabel and all, all these people at, at at the tables, and I would just kind of watch them uh, from the, from the bar. It was it was it was an amazing scene in the early eighties. What was it like to transition from watching them to being among them? <laughs> It was very weird. Suddenly, I could get into the mud club and places like that instead of begging. But um, it was—I uh, don't know. I guess it was—it was—it was gratifying in many ways. Do you feel used to it? Do you feel like, or do you still sort of feel like the kid of the bar? <sighs> um, I think that I like to think that I still step back sometimes in amazement uh, at certain aspects of my life because I think as a novelist, if you if you get jaded, you might as well stop writing. Um, and you know, I still feel I still feel pretty unjaded at times about my life here in New York. Um, you know, I was just—I I haven't been to the financial district, for instance, in I don't know four or five months. And just being down here, I'm you know kind of amazed anew at the I don't know some of the buildings and um, some of the streets and. Um, um, you know, it's 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 a part of Manhattan that uh, that I find pretty extraordinary, and um, I still, you know, I like to think that there's still uh, a lot of a lot of Manhattan that uh, surprises me and, and intrigues me, uh, and that's and and I continue to write about it. Uh, and I continue to love living here. That's encouraging, I got to say, because I feel like there's been so many changes in New York. I mean, I lived there for 13 years. I recently moved, and I feel like I saw it go through all these sort of, you know, cycles and generations. And I feel like you're one of the great contemporary New York authors. And, you know, it's exciting to hear that you can still kind of, you know, keep invested in it and excited well, about it, you know? Yeah, I, you know, I mean, it has changed in many, many ways. Not necessarily for the good, but on the other hand, I think you know Manhattan does keep reinventing itself, and um, and you know as much as we mourn the I don't know the loss of the certain uh, grittier aspects of New York, uh, you know the um, the the streets were were certainly uh, more raw and more real back in the in the eighties and the early nineties uh, before Giuliani came along, but. Um, but 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 I still think, you know, there's so much here. I mean, this is still the center of publishing, fashion, uh, you know, media, um, podcasts, art, uh, podcasts. <laughs> podcasts. <yeah. laughs> um, you know, and it's still it's still the greatest greatest restaurant town in America. You know, um, it is. I mean, you see I mean there's, there's a, a case confidence. to be made for San Francisco and Chicago and New Orleans, but really, it's it's New York. I mean, you know, look, nobody else, you know, has what we have. Nobody else has the Michelin three star restaurants that we do. And, and don't even talk to me about L.A. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> wow, sorry, this, but... <laughs> no, this is one of our favorite topics on this show. Like, you know, L.A. is trying very, very hard. Well, you know, I think LA is a great place to eat sushi and ethnic food of various sorts. But, but you know, really, do they have a La Bernadette? Do they have a Brooklyn Fair? I, I can't even think of anything close. Um, well, they have Vespertine, which just opened, and Eater, editor have. fixation Vespertine. We are all obsessed with Vespertine. Are you, <laughs> I, look, you know? I look forward to going. <laughs> it's, it's a spaceship that traveled through time from really? moon worshiping people. I'm delighted about this yeah. restaurant. I'm going. Yeah, in a you're going, weeks. right? I am going to LA specifically to eat at Vespertine. Okay, I'm so obsessed I, with this restaurant. Now I have a thank God I have a destination. All the food looks like next rocks. time I go. <laughs> My obsession is currently sort of a value neutral obsession, let's put it that way. And I'm excited to see how it manifests in huh. real life. But when did it open? When did it open? Oh, just a couple of weeks yeah, like ago. July. I think a month or two. Oh, you guys yeah. are just right on top of this. But. Well, we try very hard to be okay, on the so bleeding I, edge. I haven't, been, I haven't been there in a <laughs> well, couple of weeks. One reason so I no, think no uh, wonder. we're all very curious is that the chef uh, famously kicked out a critic from his restaurant. And uh, he is uh, <laughs> he's very kind of an emo, kind of goth, like sci fi. He's a really intense dude. Yeah, super intense. <laughs> and His food it's is like, very. He. he has declared that this restaurant is art. It's not a restaurant. It hits all of my buttons. <laughs> I'm, like every every weird squirrely rabbit hole that I like to go down, thinking about food and tasting menus, is absolutely being cast into sharp relief at this restaurant. Oh, so I, I can't wait. I I would love to 
go to a great restaurant in L.A. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's get back to the real point, which is that you're trashing the entire city of Los Sorry, Angeles. Yeah. No, you know, we uh, Greg, yes. up until very recently, lived in get L.A. A, and get we had an email a... from Brett Easton Ellis today. Uh, oh yeah, he's he's Mr. L.A. <laughs> out there, right? Yeah, he's yes, yes, he's he 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 left he left New York. I don't know, 15 years ago, and he he's doing seldom, Hollywood sel- stuff. Seldom right? comes back. Yeah, yeah, he's writing writing scripts and shooting. Um, Shooting web series. And you guys still like, keep in touch. You still get along. We do, we do. Yeah, I think we get along. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I never know what he's going to say in, in his next interview. But um, yeah, I mean, I had, we we had dinner. Um, we had dinner uh, uh, about uh, six weeks ago, and I, when I when I'm out there, um, as I occasionally am, uh, I'm always happy to see him. But was- although, although I, you know, we have a sort of New York, L.A. You know, culture war going on. It's healthy, that's healthy. That's what I was just thinking. You I mean, know. Brad, well, Brad, Brad thinks New York is over. You know, well, I, 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 I tell him, has LA started yet? <laughs> <laughs> you know, as a reader, you know, everything you were just saying a few minutes ago about the way you view Manhattan as a novelist, as a reader, when Freddie Snellis left New York, I felt betrayed. Like <laughs> yeah. I, I, I. You know, in the well, way that I think you know, readers assume well, yeah, ownership his, over authors. But I was like, "How dare you leave New York? This you, this is a city that you've helped yeah, create." Although, although at least half of his books up to that point were set in L.A. I mean, but, less than zero, most notably. I mean, but very, they always felt like a New York person writing about L.A. Uh, well, you know, he grew up there, so. Um, I don't know. And apparently, he's reverted. Uh, All right. He's gone. He's gone, gone back to his he's roots. He's gone back to his roots. <laughs> Good for him. No, I, I loved his writing about New York. You know, I mean, American Psycho is, is a, is an amazing book. Yeah. Difficult in some. Glamorama ways was always my favorite. To swallow. <laughs> oh yeah, Glam- yeah, Glamorama is fun. You know, he yeah, he borrowed one of my characters. To, That's the best. That book. Yeah. Allison Poole, yeah. Oh. I think that was kind of his way of joking about the critics always pretending that we were interchangeable. Well, there's something very, like— um, But I don't know for sure. There's something very, like, like Marvel Cinematic Universe about that, right? Like this, Or, like, the way Quentin, yeah, Car- yeah. Quentin Tarantino's movies all have the same fake cigarette brand, yeah. like— and then I then I appears myself supposedly in Lunar Park. Uh, there's a character named Jay McInerney running around snorting cocaine off the hood of a Porsche and falling into Brett's pool. And like everyone knows, it was a Maserati. <laughs> so this is just bullshit. Uh, it was. Yeah. Uh, it's, a great, it's a very good book, though. Lunar Park. <laughs> D- despite, despite the libelous treatment of, of Jay McInerney. <laughs> <laughs> Quick pause in our conversation with Jay McInerney to check in with today's advertiser. The sponsor of this episode of The Eater Upsell is Bob's Red Mill, which you probably know from their incredible selection of oats and flours and meals that are available at grocery stores everywhere, and also at bobsredmill.com. All of their flours and meals and oats are produced in a 100% gluten-free facility, which I'm not gluten-free. Are you gluten-free, Greg? No, I eat all the gluten, but I, I use Bob's products, like, all the time. Me Especially too! Especially if I want to make, like, a big pot of something and put some meat or vegetables on top. That's when I reach for the Bob's Red Mill stuff. Yeah, I buy their hazelnut flour and make a really rad Hungarian hazelnut cake. It's good stuff. They make polenta and oatmeal and regular gluten-free flours and all sorts of nut flours and anything you might need to do gluten-free baking, all of which is processed, as we said, in a 100% gluten-free facility, which for those of you out there with celiac disease, I know is a major concern. Yeah, and uh, Bob's Red Mill is offering an exclusive deal to our amazing Eater Upsell listeners with the promo code EATER for 20% off all products at bobsredmill.com. 20%, that's a pretty major discount. You should go to bobsredmill.com right now to shop and explore their huge range of products and get inspiration from their hundreds of recipes. And when you check out, don't forget to use promo code EATER, E-A-T-E-R, for 20% off. So you say L.A. has no Laberna Dan. Um, do you think Laberna Dan is that the tops? Is that the, that's the best one in New York, you think? Um, I'm very partial to it, I must say. Um, you know, I... I was also extremely partial to uh, Brooklyn Fair. I'm, I'm still waiting to, you know, I, I, I haven't, 
I've I've only been twice since the move, and I'm 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 sort of reserving my verdict until I go one more time. But I mean, I, I think you know, I think those you know, I think those two for a while have been at the top. We're at the top. And those chefs have a I'm mutual appreciation for each other. I feel like they're kind of are in the same, you know, brain cell there or something. You yeah. know, and we also and we also have we do have world class sushi here at, at at Masa. You know, I think that is one area in which LA bests us. Um, there's, I think, there's more great sushi in LA, but uh, but we're doing pretty well here. Has anyone ever offered you the role of a restaurant critic? Yes. Well, almost. The New York Times kind of. Auditioned me back about 15 years ago, um, and um, I, I, they also auditioned uh, Bill Buford huh. uh, at about the same time. And we were there; we were both under consideration. And since we're friends, we both kind of found out about it. Um, but you know, we re- we both wrote a couple of test reviews, and um, um, at the time, you know, they they you know they interviewed me a couple of times, and 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 there was this issue. You know, I, I wasn't very anonymous compared to, you know, the average restaurant critic, and I was fairly recognizable in Manhattan. So that was, that was at that time an issue for them. Of course, now there are you know pictures of Pete Wells in every, in every kitchen in in Manhattan, and it's pretty hard to. I think it's pretty hard for any um, major restaurant critic to go in anywhere anonymously, but. Um, in the end, I just I just decided, wow, this is a lot of work, and I have a day job. And actually, I got to tell you, um, it wasn't that much. It's like marrying your mistress, you know. <laughs> I, I, I was like running to the bathroom to like take notes instead of you know. I mean, as opposed to things I used to run to the bathroom for, and <laughs> and, and you know, and I and I went with friends, and they were all being competitive about like commenting on the food. And oh, I, was just, sure. I suddenly thought this is killing the restaurant experience for me. So, in the end, um, I think it was mutually agreed between the Times and myself that I would remain a novelist. Um, and I'm trying to think of who. Um, of, of of who they then they they went in their own ranks. That and, was um, that was the rise of Bruni, right? Bruni, yeah. yeah. They, they, then yeah. Oh, and, by, and by the way, Julian Barnes was also somebody oh, that wow. they approached, the English novelist, who that again, again a, fascinating. again a really uh, a very good friend of mine. And uh, so so it's funny that the three people that they approached, all literary people. And we all happen to know each other. Uh, it was it was very weird. Um, I, I like the thought of the alternate universes. Of, <laughs> yeah. You know, you as the critic, or, or Bill Buford as the critic. <laughs> Julian Barnes as a as the Times restaurant critic. Honestly, like <laughs> I am lighting up with delight I, at that prospect. I, Julie, Julian writes very well about food. He's also, I mean, he's very serious about it. Um, yeah, I, but he but he hates New York, so I don't. I don't that would make think it even that better, was ever in the cards. right? Like yeah. I think, that, I mean, that makes for a fantastic critic. Someone who's just hoping to not hate is so much better than someone who's looking for things to love. Yeah, no, but, I, no. I mean, it it, it is kind of weird, isn't it? That 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 lineup. Of oh my gosh. <laughs> the three, yeah. Then then they, I don't know. They came to their senses or something. And I think Frank Bruni was the Italian correspondent right, at the time. He was the Rome then, bureau chief. Yeah, and then they they, they brought him over here. It's fascinating that, that I think that marked a moment when the Times, all the critics since then, Bruni, Sifton, and Wells, have all been internal to the Times. Exactly. And yeah. it, it does seem like a strategic shift. Yeah, I, 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 I keep hearing that Wells is gone, but he doesn't seem to be gone. <laughs> he's plenty around, as far as I know. Yeah, he's kind know. of Pete he's kind Colin. of reigning. I feel like you know, like he's uh, you know, he's the king. He's owning it. But I mean, there's got to be so much fatigue related to that job. I don't know how you do it for that long. You know, I get it. Yeah, I get it. I'm you know, I, I actually remember back in uh, Brian Miller days, and oh. um, I, he he invited me to a few of his of his. Uh, dinners, you know, you know, these guys need a sort of rotating cast of characters to 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 go with them to these restaurants and and order some of the dishes. And uh, uh, Brian Miller, I remember, spent two hours a day in the gym in order to combat the obvious hazards of the job. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure what not sure what P. Wells does, but I. I I think it would be exhausting. I, I, again, I just feel like you know, taking sometimes turning your passion into your vote, you know, your vocation uh, can be, I don't know, it can be a kind of buzzkill. Yes, that feels you know, very real to me. God, I, I don't know. I would hate to have to have to 
feel that I had to go out again tonight. I mean, I do go out every night, but but <laughs> but I don't have to. So well, how it's do you, fun. How do you avoid that feeling with wine, though? So wine is your passion, and you've turned it into at least a partial vocation. Yeah, but partial is the is the key word. I do it. I do it once a month. I mean, I, I briefly was at uh, well for for four years. I wrote for the Wall Street Journal and. They wanted me to do it weekly, and I said, "This is just not a chance." So then we went to bi-week, bi-weekly, bi-monthly, um, fortnightly. And yes, fortnightly, and it um, and that that eventually became a bit of a grind for me. And I just said, "Sorry, I can't can't do this twice a month thing." And um, um, but I don't know. I just feel like once once a month is is just about right. And there's always something that interests me in the world of wine, and when. I, I mean, I, I keep telling myself probably I'll quit next year, but it's been 21 years. <laughs> you can't quit I'm, I now. Still, no, but I still. You're on a roll. You know, it's, it's really kind of wonderful having an excuse to to. Um, it, it's a way of exploring the world. In other words, you know, I I would go to France anyway, but this gives me I don't know kind of a mission, you know, um, and, and Italy and California. Um, <laughs> You know, I, 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 um, I mean, I think you know Napa is one of the most beautiful places in in America. Also, has a couple of really good restaurants, unlike L.A. Yeah, I've heard they burn. have decent food up there. Yes, <laughs> I know these sick burns are <laughs> um, so good. We're just Meadow, gonna... Meadowood, Meadowood, yeah, amazing, and the and the French Laundry continues continues to impress. Uh, after all, I've, God, what has it been? Twenty years? Twenty? It's been quite a while. They have a new kitchen, I hear. But Huge kitchen renovation. Yeah, the, the, the new kitchen. I was there. I was there about a month ago. It's very, very cool kitchen. Uh, there's a. I think that this episode is probably going to air uh, while it's still the summertime. And I'm just curious. Do you have any like rules for summertime wine drinking? Is there anything that you're just all about? You know, when it's still warm out. <laughs> summertime wine drinking. Well, well, you know, for years as a wine writer, I, I used to try to promote the idea of rosé, uh, which I discovered. In the south of France. Congratulations, oh, it worked. It's your fault. People, people used to laugh at me, and and in it's fact, it's your fault. That's all my fault. No, take credit for that. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it just, it, I, I just, I just didn't think it was going to catch on. You know, it's kind of like, it's like you know, it's it's the way that sommeliers are always trying to get you to drink Riesling. You uh-huh. know, I mean, um, I'm not sure that that's going on, but 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 yeah, I used to in the summer. I always used to. I would try to serve my guests uh, rosé, and they would they would just look at me and 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 say like, "Aren't you supposed to know something about wine? <laughs> wine? Don't you, don't you realize that this is pink pink wine?" Um, but uh, I don't know. I mean, you just have to go lighter in the summer, and I do I do drink rosé, but I, I have to say, by this time of year, I'm just thoroughly sick of it. It's it's August, and I'm just mm-hmm. I just I do not want to see another glass of rosé for at least nine months. You've moved on to like Grenache and. Uh, the lighter Chablis. Chablis, Chablis okay. is my summer default wine, and it's still it's still much less expensive than white Burgundy from Merceau or Pelini Montrachet. Um, and uh, it's really and and by, and by the way, this, this 2015 vintage is just foolproof. Um, Chablis can be very lean and acidic, but um, I highly recommend 2015 Chablis for 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 novices. Let's say for anybody who likes a crisp, dry white wine. All right, That's I, I, actionable content yes, for this I, podcast. I love a crisp dry I'm white. I'm going to go buy a 2015 Chablis yeah. right now. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, yeah, but I mean, starting it, you know, starting it under 20 bucks, you can get. Very decent Chablis. That is. Hey, you sound like a real wine yeah. writer. This is, yeah. You know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thirteen wines that won't break the bank for your summer barbecue. Yeah. I don't, yeah. Let's put it on a blog. Yeah, enjoy it while you can. Don't enjoy it while you can. I don't do this very often. <laughs> so, are there any um, are there any great white whales for you in the world of wine? Or I guess great red. Whales. Ooh, Are there, good what's, one. what's the what's the bottle you? I know it wasn't that. That was that a was sly joke. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what's the what's the bottle you dream oh, of? The, oh, the bottle that I dream of that I'm sure I'll, that I doubt I'll ever taste is in 1945 Romanée Conti. You know, it's that's that's the great. Um, How many of those exist? That's the great in white the whale of the, the red whale of 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 the wine world. Um, well. Many, many more have been drunk than were ever made. You know, uh, so now we're back to uh-huh. the, the counterfeit a wine issue. But fascinating yeah. world of wine. Yeah, fraud. I mean, because because it's a bottle of wine that sells for oh, I, I have no idea, but let's say fifty thousand um, dollars. 
many of them have been made since 1945. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and I'm sure that a lot of the people who think they've drunk it um, have, have consumed something else, something that is not 1945 or Romanée Conti. Um, but that is the that's the sort of holy holy of holies. Uh, Romane Conti is probably the you know the sort of uh, the most revered vineyard in the wine world, and uh, and at forty five was was an extraordinary vintage. Uh, Apparently, <laughs> I, they say. Uh, yes, they say. No, I've, I've actually, I've, I've had, I've had a few other wines from 1945, and it was, it was a very good year. It was interesting. I mean, most of the men hadn't even come back from the war, uh, and it was a very small production in Bordeaux and Burgundy, but um, legendary. Well, if anyone so, is know, listening, if anybody, yeah. If, if anybody, <laughs> yeah. anybody wants to invite me over to dinner, <laughs> crack open a bottle. Well, so so what is what is what is drinking like for you? What is if, if we were to somehow get our hands on this and decide that it was a reasonable allocation of our budget? What do you do? I mean, what do you do when you have a fifty thousand dollar bottle of wine? Like, do you? crack it open with dinner? Do you ritualize it? Do you drink alone? Um, Do you drink with friends? Well, when I most, when I taste these, some of these, you know, legendary wines, uh, it's often, you know, with a, a group of friends so that, you know, let's say typically eight or nine guys would, would share something like that in, in order to, I don't know, sort of to spread the spread the wealth or share the experience and um and presumably they're do, all wine people. But I do yeah, I mean I have a, I have friends who are you know I, I have a lot of wine friends and um I've been lucky enough to to share some pretty extraordinary bottles. Um you know, writing about wine doesn't hurt. Yeah. It opens a lot of doors. Yeah, and sometimes, I mean sometimes visiting a winery they will open something really old and rare from the cellar for me and it's uh, I don't know. It's, it's a great. It's hard hard to believe it's a job, yeah. <laughs> but I I get paid for it. Do you have any bottles that uh, you have a, a vast collection? I understand a personal pretty seller. big. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have any more, bottles? Probably more than I could drink in my <laughs> lifetime. But <laughs> but you know, collecting isn't a you know the, the collecting gene is 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 irrational. And um, um, the the trouble with wine collecting is that. It's it's not like stamp collecting or or coin collecting because the whole point of wine is 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 consumption. So as a collector, you're always torn between your desire to have and your desire to consume yeah. and to destroy the the thing that you that you are inclined to hoard. There's something very yeah, beautiful about that, right? The I love it. Yeah, the fundamental tension of. Yeah. It's, it's different the thing you than love. other kinds of other kinds of collecting. Kill, yeah, killing you. Kill, you have to kill the thing you love. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's heady stuff. And it, you know? Uh, you know, gives you a good buzz, makes you feel good too. You know, right? Well, that's the, you it, know, that's it the thing. Its own wound. That's the thing that I find annoying about a lot of wine writing is, you know, let's face it. One of the reasons that we like this is because there's alcohol in it, and we get buzzed. Right. <laughs> and yeah. That's that's one of the primary impulses behind the consumption of wine. Yeah. I mean, we don't have like extraordinary cultural just, edifices about apple juice. Yeah, I just I just don't I just can't I just can't imagine I would be that interested in wine if it, if if it didn't, if, fuck you if up it didn't like... get me off. <laughs> it's I wouldn't. But you know, it was wine was a way for me it was a way of 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 kind of intellectualizing my hedonism, you know, and yeah. and and channeling it into slightly more constructive, you know, um uh, uh, channels than, than than cocaine and vodka. You well, know, this seems you know it, it. This occurred to me as sort of like the psychologically obvious read, right? Like that that you made your name to a certain extent writing about cocaine and vodka, right? And then you transitioned <laughs> into being a wine writer, and yeah, that's a it, it's it's fancy getting fucked up, right? <laughs> I mean, it's well, it's yeah, not. You know, but not so much fancy. I would say the the, the thing I love about wine is, well, aside from the buzz, is I mean it, it's kind of a 
an endless subject. I mean, there's, 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 there's the aesthetic experience of drinking wine. There's the history of drinking wine. There's, for me, like the, story, the storytelling aspect of writing about the people who make it and the places that it comes from. I mean, you can you, do that you with can cocaine. Even, you can pr- approach it from, from the point of view of geology or meteor- meteorology. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really, it's an incredibly rich uh, field. Um, yeah, cocaine... Could not, do that. Not, There's not, an agricultural not, story not there. quite so much to learn from It's it. a little more geopolitical, I guess. Oh, man. Vodka, <laughs> like, I don't know. Cocaine I, criticism, you know, that's a whole... That's an unusual... <laughs> I'm surprised that, like, the early days of Vice, they, they must have I, done I, that. I do, have, actually... I do have some friends who can whack, wax rhapsodic about, you know, <laughs> uh, blue, you know, Colombian blue flake for, for hours, but... Um, you know, I think this is... Uh, we should give a modest but not <laughs> extravagant amount of credit to that section of the world. <laughs> but, you know, I think wine is... You can write about wine in the pages of Time and Country Magazine and the Wall Street Journal. Maybe not in our lifetime will we live to see the cocaine columnist right you know, next to the society pages. An interesting concept, though. I just, I, I, yeah. Fortunately, I retired from the field before I thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jay, we have reached the lightning round portion of our podcast. Mm-hmm. Interstitial music pops in right here. It's really fun. Um, and today's question asker, speaking of connoisseurship and, well, really pretty much everything we talked about, is one of our colleagues at Eater, Robert Sietzma, who is one of Eater New York's restaurant critics and a legend of New York City. He knows everything. He knows mm. everyone. And he's been around here about as long as you have, God. I think. So, <laughs> Robert, welcome to the Eater Upsell. Hi, Jay. This is Robert Sietzema, and I have some lightning round questions for you. When was the last time you drank a beer, and what was it? Um, the last time I drank a beer was um, uh, at a friend's house in the Hamptons, and it was a uh, it was from the Montauk Brewery. Oh yeah, their summer ale is really yeah, good. Ale. Answer. Yeah, I like that one a lot. It was, it, was, it was actually really good. Great yeah, cans, it's a fantastic great beer. cans, yeah. great yeah. cans, L- yeah. literal cans. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, all right. I, yeah, <laughs> no, I was about to go down a horrible path making like boob jokes. Um, Robert, there are some great other question. cans in Montauk. I'm I'm told. Yeah, no, Montauk is land of great cans. Yeah. It's just terrific. Um, Robert, what's your next question? I know you love SpongeBob SquarePants. Who's your favorite character? And do you drink wine while watching the show? Uh, well, naturally, my favorite character is Plankton. Um, the who's you know. Goal it is to, you know, be the evil overlord of of all of Bikini Bottom. Um, I'm afraid I'm not familiar with the narrative. I can't. Yeah, if you don't know Plankton, that's I'm more of an Adventure Time person. That's a terrible. It's a terrible deficit. A, Sorry. No. <laughs> so he's the bad guy. Uh, yeah, Plank, Plankton's the bad guy. Yeah, and and, uh, and and you see yourself in him. Is that no, uh, no, no? But he's, he's just, just easy to root yes. for. You know, the, the villain is always you know it's it's you know it's it's like uh, it's like Milton Paradise Lost. The villain you know is always the most interesting character. Yeah. Satan yeah. In, this, in this case, yeah. Plank, Plankton is like a cartoon version of Satan. All right. Except funnier. Great. I'm going to start watching SpongeBob. So what wine do you drink? Was that, was that Robert, was that the other half of your question? What wine do you drink while watching SpongeBob? Well, I started watching SpongeBob with my son, um, uh, so it wasn't really appropriate. I think, um, I, I think when I, when I, you know, when, when my, when my, when my son left the scene, if I, if I, I, I would drink champagne with SpongeBob because champagne goes with everything. <laughs> Great yeah, answer. strong, strong answer. <laughs> All right, it's like a nice grower bottle. <laughs> Robert, we have another uh, question for Jay. Recently, you disparaged the wines Uh-oh. Trump the teetotaler makes in Virginia. If you could make him drink one glass of wine, what would it be? <laughs> Uh, it would be a glass of wine with hemlock in it. Oh, I'm not sure. oh. <laughs> that's a very good answer. Um, Though I understand hemlock provides a gentle death. <laughs> Let's see. I, <laughs> yes, maybe I maybe I should revise. That. All Actually, vicious. You know what? No, you know what I would do. I would I would wish for Donald Trump to drink a glass of 1945 Romanée Conti, which which I myself have never even had, uh, allegedly 
one of the greatest wines ever produced, because I believe that if Donald Trump became a wine drinker, he would be a much kinder and gentler person. I have thought about this as well. This is a, yeah. Like, huh. if he just mellowed out he, a little yes. bit, he wouldn't have to take out his yeah. bullshit on everyone, you know? Yes, there he is. So that's what, what the, the, the wine that I would wish for him is the best possible wine in the world so that he would become fond of wine and start drinking it. <laughs> that is an extraordinarily generous answer. I'm actually I'm both moved by the generosity of spirit in your answer and fascinated by this psychological profile that both of you seem to have constructed that I'm totally on board with now that I've been introduced to it. That he just needs to get fucking drunk and yeah. deal with his I shit. I don't trust people who don't drink. It's <laughs> I mean, his other he has vices. He also and they're doesn't extreme. own a pet. They're extreme and gross, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's a subject for a different podcast. Yeah. We'll yeah. spin off to yeah. a, a sidebar. Yeah, we should, we should probably we... cut that hemlock thing or other secret service <laughs> oh after me. Oh, I think yeah. we've said worse on this show. Yeah. Um, Robert, what's next for, for Jay McInerney? What was your drunk snack of choice in 1980s New York City? Uh, well, pizza, of course. But my, but my favorite drunk snack is, of course, gyoza which is one of the greatest foods in the whole world. I lived in Japan uh, for two years after college, and I've... I've ever since been looking for the perfect gyoza, but I, I think it's the perfect drunk snack. How many gyoza can you down in one sitting? Well, I think anything less than 12 is, is just slacking. Child's you know? play. Yeah. <laughs> I, know. I mean, 18 is good. They, 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 they always come in sixes for some reason. There's actually, I was in Paris uh, about, about three, three months ago. I was in Paris promoting my latest novel, and I, and I found a gyoza, an, an entire um, story. Uh, restaurant devoted to gyoza. Paradise. So, yeah. It's just, yeah, in, in Paris of all places. They've, there's an extraordinary connection between France and Para, France and, and Japan. Yeah. Their food scenes are in dialogue, as, yeah, they as are. we they say. Are at this yeah. Point. Yeah. yeah, It's really remarkable. Seemed, but as recently as like 15 years ago, you in France, you only saw French food, and suddenly there's, there's a lot of dialogue, as you say, and a lot, and a lot of... You know, exchange with now with other food cultures, which is good. Good for France. Which is good for you know, France. Yeah, they, they, they were getting a little they dusty. They needed to open up a little yeah. bit. Yeah, for France. All right, Robert, what's next? Do you routinely consult sommeliers? And have you ever had a fight with one? Uh, yes, and yes. Um, I do. I feel like sommeliers are in the front lines of, the, of wine, and these guys taste every day. They work really hard. They work, they work, they work much harder than I do, and they taste more wines than I do. Um, one of the best things that's happened to us in recent years is the rise of sommelier culture, I think. And uh, New York City just has an amazing, uh, amazing battalion of, of great sommeliers. Um, but I have indeed fought with um, with one or two of the of the of, of the not so great examples of <laughs> sommelier culture. I mean, uh, you know, every once in a while, um, someone will try to convince me that a corked bottle of wine isn't corked, and uh, them's fighting Do you words. Throw a punch. <laughs> I mean, that also seems um, like a very pure form of bullshit. Like corked yeah. wine is corked. Yeah, well, you can't mess that up. Well, I think it, as a sommelier, if you can't detect that scent in a wine, then you shouldn't be a sommelier. And if you detect it and still insist that it's not there, you should be fired. Like either way, it's a grievous failure. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's unfortunate. I'm, I, I hope you find joy in these fights with sommeliers in some way. <laughs> well, I, uh, it's pretty rare, but um, I, I, it's actually less... Uh, it's probably more uh, more common in Europe than it is yeah. than it is here. I mean, I just feel like wine culture has become very, just much more democratic and less snobby in 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 our country. For the the French are still a little behind on this. You still get these you know real assholes with like silver ashtrays around their <laughs> neck that are trying to convince you that a terrible wine is is okay. And oh. that they know more than you do. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna seize the microphone back from Robert because I have two questions for right. you for the lightning round. The first one is, if a new kid, 23 years old, is moving to New York and he wants to do coke in a restaurant, what restaurant would you send him to? <laughs> he wants to do coke in a restaurant. Wants to do coke. What's what's the what's the hot new restaurant all the kids should be doing coke in these days? Oh, well, I mean, if you if you want to be historically correct, you should probably go to the Odeon. But uh... but you know, where where would you recommend the New Guard? <sighs> 
I didn't. Well, I, I don't, I don't want to. Um, I'm not sure I want yeah, to smear, smear anybody's. <laughs> I don't think I know the I answer know. to that. I mean, I don't Re- do coke, but um, Re- I used to cover New York restaurants for a while, and I don't even. I don't know. Rebel seems like a kind of place that would be good to do coke. Sure. <laughs> yeah. um, but I like that restaurant a lot. I don't know. I, I don't know whether it's, you know, I don't know, I don't know whether it's a compliment or a, <laughs> yeah, an insult. Greg and I had a dinner a couple of years ago at Dirty French, speaking of the right. major food group, yep. the, the folks who, who own uh, the grill in the pool. And I feel like Dirty French is the most perfect do coke in the basement restaurant. Oh, that's right. That's a good one. Yeah. Yep. Maybe, maybe any of their yeah. establishments aside from the pool and, uh, you know, the grill. Or maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. But there is something. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Well, Coke and Bathrooms, I think, like, if you believe in yourself hard enough, you can do Coke at any restaurant. Right. I, I I certainly did for a long time. <laughs> I, there, there weren't many spots I didn't hit in 1985. Well, Jay McInerney, thank you so much for joining us on the Eater Upsell. If our listeners want to read your writing, they can find you at Town and Country or your novels local, everywhere. Your local bookstore, if, if if you still have one. Yeah, support your local independent booksellers, boys and girls. Yes, bye and thank you. Cheers and bon appetit. The Eater Upsell is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network and is recorded at Vox Media Studios in San Francisco in New York City. Your two hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and that other guy whose voice you hear every week, Greg Morbido. Our producer is AP Dan, more commonly known as Dan Janine. Our editorial producer is Monica Burton. Our executive producer is Maureen Janone. Our studio team is Miles Ewell and Paige Bethman. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. And the most important person in this entire process, the one person without whom none of this would be possible, past, present, or future, is you, beautiful and brilliant listener. It's you. Thank you for everything you do. We love you.